the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. From Billy Graham to Sarah Palin, Evangelicals and the Betrayal of American Conservatism. It is authored by Dr. Daryl Hart. He is a professor of history at Hillsdale College. And Dr. Hart, thanks so much for taking time to be with us tonight. I I guess to start out with, maybe you can help, uh, for the sake of this conversation, uh, explain uh, some labels here. Some of the terminologies that we're all kind of singing off the same uh, uh, page of the hymnal, so to speak. First off, when we talk about American conservatism, Conservatism. Who or what is that? Well, the conservatism that I'm thinking of is the conservatism that originated in the 1950s, coming out of the uh, uh, two world wars and in the context of the Cold War. People like William F. Buckley Jr., uh, who started the National Review, and Russell Kirk, who wrote a book called The Conservative Mind, were concerned about what was the uh, American involvement in war, fighting communism fighting fascism, what that was doing to the, the to the republic and the kind of political order that we had, and that delicate balance of checks and balances, both in, within the federal government, between among the legislative, executive, and judicial branches, but also the balance between the federal government and local governments in the states, uh, townships, and counties. So they were concerned about a political order, and, and that this political order not get out of hand, and that not especially that not too much um, power be delegated to the federal government, uh, even though some of that power needed to be there for the sake of of, uh, executing the war uh, against communism. So that's the conservatism I'm talking about. It's sometimes called traditional conservatism, sometimes paleoconservatism. And the first fruits of that were the the, uh, Barry Goldwater candidacy in 1964. A later manifestation is Ronald Reagan in 1980. All right. Now, on the other side of the continuum here, uh, we have evangelicals. And I guess it might be fair to observe that that today's modern evangelical is kind of a uh, a reworking, so to speak, of what used to be yesterday's fundamentalist. Am I right? I mean, do we we find some roots that go back as far as, say, uh, William Jennings Bryan and and that end of the the Christian continuum? Continuum? Yes, evangelicals, uh, some would say, are um, uh, or fundamentalists are angry evangelicals. So, uh, <laughs> so fundamentalists a little bit more separatist, a little bit more opinionated and cantankerous. Evangelicals are a nicer side of that, and they arose in the 1940s and 50s, roughly the same time as this traditionalist conservatism did, um, and they are associated with figures like uh, Billy Graham who was more or less a poster boy for this evangelicalism. But they they were against liberalism in the mainline churches, but um, the evangelicals were trying to be nicer about it and, and trying to forge another consensus that would also lead to a Christian America and a Christian America that would be better than the one that the mainline churches 
have been trying to um, create through the social gospel. Now, I suppose if you took a casual survey, most Americans today might conclude that that conservatives and evangelicals are kind of joined at the hip or, or, or maybe in, in some respects one in the same. But in fact, that was not the case. Uh, this was not always one group, but a coming together of two groups post-World War II then. Yes, although I'll complicate a little bit. Before before Reagan, especially, um, evangelicals would have been divided between the North and the South. Okay. And where the West fits is another question. But owing to the legacy of the, of the Civil War, particularly, Southern evangelicals would have voted Democratic overwhelmingly, except when a Roman Catholic was running for office. Um, and so what, what Reagan is able to do, he's able to carve away... Evangelical Southern Evangelicals from the Democratic Party, as well as ethnic Roman Catholics, also who also voted Roman uh, Democratic, and and so there you have the, the these Reagan Democrats. Is this part of the shift that we're seeing, uh, Doctor Hart, in the 1970s, uh, where all of a sudden there's kind of a merging of conservatism and evangelicalism? I'm thinking specifically of the advent of things like Jerry Falwell's Moral Majority or Phyllis Schlafly's Eagle Forum, things of that sort. Yes, exactly. And and the Republican strategists, in part, were encouraged Jerry Falwell to form the moral majority. And they, and they saw an opening here, a vulnerability on the part of Democrats with this particular uh, relig- Christian constituency, both Protestant and Roman Catholic, as a way to bring those people into the Republican Party. And that had been going on even back in the Nixon administration with something called the silent majority. Republicans back then recognized that there was kind of a God and country uh, traditional morality vote out there, and they tried to uh, tap that again with the silent majority. These, Dr. Hart, help us understand, as we try to kind of um, put into perspective the events of the last uh, 25, 30 years of the influence of, the, of this coming together, so to speak, of evangelicalism and conservatism. And certainly we saw uh, the early days in the 1970s giving growth to Reaganism in the 1980s, uh, bids for the presidency by the likes of Pat Robertson and so forth, that I think, you know, heretofore would have thought an absolute impossibility. And yet in recent years, it seems as if this this interesting coming together of conservatives and evangelicals at some levels is strained today. Why? Well, it's because, I think it's because evangelicals typically view things from the, through the lens of Scripture, which is laudable in so many respects as um, as Bible believing Christians that they are they 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 should but in in a society like the United States is where we have freedom of religion it's not a Christian country at least as I understand that evangelicals are prone to view the United States as a Christian country so many of the the problems that they see in America like um, gay marriage or abortion, they view through the category of sin. And within their own churches, that would probably be the correct perspective. But conservatives would also view those things as morally wrong, but they would also then argue that those are not good for the health of the nation. And so they would argue that we need to protect the, the, the lives of the innocent. And that's, that's a fundamental principle of American law. And it's not simply a question of whether it's sin or a violation of God's holy law, but it's just a question of, wait, the government should protect um, innocent life. And another one would be marriage. I mean, they would say 
many conservatives would have very different views about marriage, especially if they're Roman Catholic, they would view it as a sacrament. Others may not view it that way. But they also might then say, well, how is this going to change our culture and our society if we have a, a different definition of, uh, of marriage? So, again, they wouldn't view it, conservatives wouldn't view it as a sin the way evangelicals do. And that difference between the language of righteousness versus the language of law um, or civil society is really where evangelicals and conservatives often talk past each other. And that talking past each other would give the sense in recent years, I think, of, of, of somewhat of a, of a chasm or a disconnect beginning. Am I right? I mean, while the, the, this notion that somehow you know, conservative religion and conservative politics work hand in hand, that isn't always the case. Right. And especially now with the baby boomer generation, there are a number of evangelical leaders, pastors, uh, professors who are very critical of conservatism. And people like Jim Wallace, for instance, or Tony Campolo. Um, and they, um, they represent a, a different side of evangelicalism. They're also trying to be biblical. They're going to the Sermon on the Mount or other places in Scripture to argue for social justice or uh, care for the poor or the environment, um, and and they're winding up much more on, on the left side of the political spectrum. But again, they're using the Bible in the same way that the religious right was also appealing to the Bible back in the 70s and early 80s, although both of those groups are going to different parts of the Bible for their political convictions. And I think, you know, generationally, evangelicalism, evangelicals are moving to the left so that the next generation beyond mine, and I'm a baby boomer, the college students at evangelical colleges, I think, are very much up for grabs and may end up being split 50-50 Democrat-Republican by 2024-2028. So would you suggest then from your research, Dr. Hurth, that as we might understand and define sort of putting the face on evangelical conservatism in the likes of, of, of what we know from Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, uh, kind of the, the, the key leaders of the 1970s, 80s, and into the early 90s, that that brand of evangelical conservatism is changing? Yes, it is. Um, and I think it had to do partly with fatigue uh, over the Iraq war and the, the Bush war on terrorism. Um, and that was a very unpopular war, obviously, for, for many Americans. And, um, and, and that's part of it, but also the, the, the Cold War being over. And that really sort of kept the left and right separate, and it was much easier to make sense of some political ideals during the, the Cold War. Now with that behind, a lot of the categories are blurred. And again, President Bush probably helped blur some of those when he talked about compassionate conservatism. You know, as, as nice as that sounds, and as many good things as, as the Bush administration tried to do, many traditional conservatives would have said these are things the federal government should not be involved with at all, and that even though they are nice humanitarian endeavors, we have other institutions in society that can handle these things and not the federal government. And if the federal government starts to do it, it's actually going to, to squash some of these important uh, 
smaller institutions. Indeed. And in fact, uh, many would argue that these are tasks that cannot nearly be as executed as successfully by the government than can be by the private sector or by the faith community. We're going to ask Dr. Daryl Hart to come back again for a solid hour, talk about his book, From Billy Graham to Sarah Palin, Evangelicals and the Betrayal of American Conservatism. The new book, again, just newly published by Erdman's and available through Amazon.com. And our thanks so much for Dr. Hart. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If a, a Bible verse such as, oh, I don't know, pick one off the top of my head, God helps those who helps themselves. If that is one of your, your favorite Bible verses, then uh, this segment of the program is going to be of particular interest to you. Uh, you know which uh, apostle uh, wrote that, uh, that particular uh, well-known, well-known, uh, often often cited by many believers. God helps those who help themselves. As that's the apostle, apostle Benjamin. Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> now, if all of a sudden you you just put your you, you carefully you didn't hit the brake too hard and you know end up having the guy behind you crash into you, if you're a little troubled to find out that that's not in the Bible but actually something that was said and written by Benjamin Franklin, uh, not whom to best of my knowledge was not an apostle, then uh, there may be some other misinterpretations of other verses that actually are in Scripture that may uh, come as a bit of surprise to you. Biblical. Illiteracy is one of the biggest issues challenging the church today. And, you know, I think not surprisingly for a lot of folks, they will happen across a verse. And believe me, this is done by lay and the so-called professionals in the pulpit as well. They will happen across a verse that seems to fit the application of the point that they are trying to make. And so they'll use it, whether or not it's in context, whether or not the application is actually appropriate or historically correct, oftentimes kind of falls by the wayside. Sadly, some Sometimes this leads to significant erroneous doctrinal teaching and, and hurts people, quite frankly. Well, a new book out that talks about this um, and sets apart a, a handful of key scriptures that are some of the most oft misquoted scriptures in, in the Bible, um, all contained inside the pages of a new book called The Most Misused Verses in the Bible, Surprising Ways God Word is Misunderstood. And joining us now is Dr. Eric Margerhoff. He is senior pastor at Clearwater Community Church and author of this new book. And uh, Eric, great to have you on the show tonight. Great to be with you, Craig. I've never been to San Francisco. I'd love to see it someday. Well, great. Well, we'd love to have you out here. And meanwhile, you're you're out here through the magic of radio. That's right. So when we hear misapplication of some scripture, and, and you know, I, I, I don't want to give every believer the feeling that they're they're alone in the camp. A lot of folks will hear something like, God helps those who help themselves, and think, well, gee, that certainly sounds like it's Bible, uh, when in fact it is not. And then sadly, it, it goes even deeper than that, when people tend to sometimes, as you suggest in the book, kind of pick and choose uh, which scriptures they want, or certain scriptures that seem to be appropriate, the kind of stuff that you just kind of pull off the top of your head, slip it into the situation that, quite frankly, more often than not, has nothing to do with the situation at hand. Well, we uh, we have a tendency to look at situations, and we 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 have a scripture verse in our head that just seems to perfectly fit this circumstance, and we try to insert it in there in such a way that is foreign to the original author's intent. And um, and I think that you said it right on the head; you hit the nail on the head, so to speak, um, when you mentioned that this can hurt people. Um, people take things out of context and use it wrongly, even in wrong situations. 
and you can kind of use this uh, Bible we have as a club in a way that it was not meant to be used, and it dishonors God. And it can tend to lead people astray, too, can't it? I mean, we, we see entire doctrines that are sometimes created out of this. I, I am sometimes uh, equally fascinated and appalled by some of these so-called uh, Word of Faith teachers that are popular on television these days, uh, with a, certainly a subset of, of, of uh, the Christian community, uh, that will sometimes so stretch and distort scriptures and, and, and certain passages, all in an effort to try and prove their point. It's almost as if, uh, you know, they, they drew the conclusion, then went looking for a scripture to support it instead of it the other way around. Well, this is how the fall of humankind uh, came about, was uh, even in the first chapter of my book, I talk about how the very first quoting of God's word was a misquote from the serpent mm-hmm. in the Garden, Garden of Eden. And so it was a, a slight twist, you know, to what God really did say. And uh, that's how it began. And so that you saw how that path led us down to where we are in a sinful world that we live in today. So this is going to happen quite often in those cults and other types of religions that are going to construct a system, a humanistic system, mind you, based on verses that they've pulled out of context, subtracted from, added to. You know, you can just do all kinds of damage that way, and I even refer to how Hitler used Scripture uh, back in his day to paint a picture of the whole Jewish race uh, as a brood of vipers. Of course, we know Jesus was talking directly to the Pharisees, the religious elite of his day that were corrupt, but yet Hitler robbed that out of its context and applied it to the entire Jewish people, which, and you can see where that led us. We know that there are certainly those examples of, of extremes and, sure. and oftentimes uh, taken out of content with absolute ill intent from the very get-go. I mean, I, we can certainly argue that the serpent in the garden in the whole hath-God-said question uh, who certainly went into this out of ill intent. But within the broader Christian community to these days, how much of this really is perhaps less about intentionally distorting Scripture as opposed to maybe kind of being of the stuff that, uh, for want of a better maybe uh, example, uh, a doctor would be like uh, urban legend. In other words, where certain passages get so often misquoted that it kind of becomes now a part of the new Christian lexicon. And we don't really realize that, you know, our favorite verse that we think means this, in fact, all along has never meant that. Well, yeah, for example, like where two or three are gathered, you know, we often hear that at prayer meetings, but that's actually about the context of church discipline in Matthew 18. And it's God's promise to be with them when the church has to take a judicial decision about sin. And so when we look at that closer in its context, wow, it really enlightens us. But I want to just go back to what you said at the very beginning of that uh, last statement there, is that I believe that, that all of us, at times um, have unwittingly, unknowingly, perhaps, without any ill intent at all, have misused Scripture. I know I have. Um, I think that uh, many of us could say that, you know what, we didn't realize that at the time, but that Scripture now means something different than what we originally thought it did. And I think we can do that innocently 
But what this book is challenging us to do is to take a really close look at some of our favorite verses and and look to see if indeed we are using them correctly. Because if we do use them correctly, number one, it's going to give us a, a right view of God and who He is. It's going to expand our view of God. And then secondly, it's going to just fill us with rich, deep truths that we could apply to our life in a way that that really brings blessing and life to us. Is part of this, as you've done the research for the book, uh, is, is there a trend taking place here? In other words, is this simple, some isolated particular passages of Scripture that, as I suggest, have kind of elevated themselves into kind of the, the urban legend within Christendom? Uh, or, or is there something broader going on here? And I pose that question because we've seen kind of at certain levels within uh, postmodern Christianity, as Francis Schaeffer would suggest, uh, a, a, I think a, a slow trend toward the devolving of of biblical literacy. I mean, we went from, for example, in many pulpits in America, a very firm and uncompromising God hath said. Then it kind of went into our catechism teaches to now a lot of the the feel-good preachers, I'll call them, kind of, uh, you know, conclude with, in my opinion... So it, it, it seems as if there's a, a little bit of a slippery slope. So is, is this part of a bigger issue going on here? Absolutely. I think that we are, are in one of the most biblically illiterate um, cultures that we've had here in America ever since this country has began. And, and I believe that uh, it's important for us to be preaching and teaching the Word of God and not just tickling, itching ears that just want to hear certain things said to them. Um, I think we need to really return back to the idea of solid biblical study, where we actually study this Bible and get into it and unpack it and go through it verse by verse, book by book, and refer to other books as we study and and kind of do an inductive study method. Other methods are out there, I'm sure. You know, sitting under expository preaching, I think, is another way of creating a culture in a church where the Word of God is revered and understood and submitted to by God's people. And when you create that kind of culture, boy, you're talking about an altogether different level of depth than what you're seeing in many places today. This is the viewpoint or the approach when it comes to the study and application of Scripture as we see in Second Timothy uh, 2 and following, that we are to rightly divide the word of truth. Sad thing is we don't really know what that means. We're going to talk a bit more about that. Even work through a couple of passages that you're going to think, oh, that, that's my life verse, and maybe get a whole new take on the matter. Uh, with us today is Dr. Eric Bargerhuff. He is the author of a new book called The Most Misused Verses in the Bible, Surprising Ways That God's Word is Misunderstood. We'll come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation we're visiting tonight with the author and pastor, Dr. Eric Barjahuff. The new book is called The Most Misused Verses in the Bible. And while the, this particular book certainly walks you through some of the, the big ones out there, obviously anyone can be misquoted, misapplied. And before we get into some examples, Doctor, maybe you can walk us through some of the methodology that is necessary to really fully understand and apply a verse. It's easy to go and pick out a sentence 
sentence mm-hmm. or two and say, aha, this does what I want it to do. And if we did that, we could make the Bible say anything we wanted to in that regard. But of course, that's not God's intent. Uh, talk to us a bit about uh, what contextualization means and how to go about, as Second uh, Timothy 2 suggests, rightly divide the word of truth. Well, the first thing I do, Craig, is I take an approach that looks at Scripture on the surface at face value. I kind of look at it and say, okay, what is being said here? What is being communicated? I, I kind of take a literal approach to Scripture in that way, unless it's obvious that the, the passage is speaking figuratively or metaphorically, like um, you know, going through the eye of a needle, so to speak. Um, but what I really do is look before and after the Scripture and see what the paragraph is about, what the uh, whole particular chapter of, that this is found in is talking about, what are the themes that are emerging out of that. I look at the book as a whole, and this is where even a great study Bible would be of, of great help to to anyone who wants to interpret Scripture correctly. There's lots of wonderful information there about the author of the book, the original audience to which it was intended, some of the major theological themes that come out, maybe even some of the interpretive problems are even suggested there at the beginning of the introduction of each book. And, and you can get a bigger picture of what's happening here and what are the political climate that the writing was in, what's the social custom that were a part of the day in which the uh, the uh, original hearers were a part of. So you can use these tools that you don't have to be a PhD or a scholar or or even a pastor to be able to discern what the Bible is talking about as you study it here. But those things are very key and important as you look at each particular passage of Scripture. You have to look at what comes behind and before and around it so that you get an idea of what's being discussed at the time that you come across that passage. And that probably, in and of itself, is one of the most easiest and yet most critical uh, tools that are available at our disposal. Because I know some people say, well, gee, I'm I'm trying to consume or spend as much time in the Word as I can per day, but my goodness, I go out and get a, a study Bible. In fact, I've got one sitting here in the studio. I won't, I won't say what brand it is, but it is fashioned in such a manner, Eric, that the, the top half are the passages, and then the the bottom half of each page in a, in, in a font type that's half the size of, of the scriptural print, it's all the footnotes. And boy, by the time you work through all this, my goodness, you know, I, it, it would take a month of Sundays just to absorb a verse or two on that basis. But if you simply help to put things in context by looking several verses behind particular passage that you're, you're studying or looking at and following, that can help a lot to contextualize things, can't it? Oh, absolutely, and that's, that's how we should interpret the Scripture rightly, and, and it's, it's no different than overhearing a conversation at the mall. You know, if you just hear one sentence that someone said over at the drinking fountain, you may not have the whole, coast, the whole conversation that had happened throughout the course of their walking through the stores or discussing things. The same is true, I mean, that's a crude example, but it's the same idea when you come to the Scripture. You've got to listen to the entire conversation. In that sense, I would suggest even reading through the entire Bible to kind of figure out what are the main themes of Scripture, you know, the creation, redemption that comes as a result of the fall and God's plan of choosing a people for himself and and then the promise of the Messiah. So taking even a whole Bible approach helps us get a big picture. There's one other thing that I would like to add to interpreting things rightly is also understanding what's called genre or a literary form. Uh, one of the things that I even write about in this book is understanding the nature of a proverb. 
that a proverb is not necessarily an absolute promise. For example, the train up a child in the way you should go passage. Um, it's not an absolute promise, but they're general principles based on experience and observation over a period of time. And so understanding the nature of a proverb will help you interpret what this proverb is saying and how you should properly apply it to your life. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, our visit is with Dr. Eric Margerhoff. The book is called The Most Misused Verses in the Bible, Surprising Ways God's Word is Misunderstood. Uh, I I almost hesitate, Eric, to head down this road because I know I'm really going to get telephone calls. (laughs) But in terms of particular translations, and we we may even need to delineate for some listeners uh, what we mean by a a translation... uh, Is there any one that is the most accurate? And I know folks have to deal with clarity on one hand, accuracy on another, and there seem to be so many versions of the Bible out there these days that uh, it's hard sometimes to know which one might be the best. Well, you are opening up a can of worms there, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I think. I just say just say it for the record here. I believe sure. in reading the Bible that that Moses wrote and that Paul preached out of, that's and right. that's well, and that's the King James. <laughs> <laughs> I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, it is. It is. Let me just say this: there are many good translations of the Bible, and I do talk about this a little bit in the book as to why we have new translations that come out, because language changes, and context of how we use language changes, and and so it's important for us to understand that it's a legitimate thing to write a new translation of Scripture as, as different hearers and different audiences. I mean, we're still wanting to be faithful to the original Hebrew and the original Greek and Aramaic texts that the Bible was written in, but I think for, for me, one of my personal favorites is one that came out in 2001. Uh, the English Standard Version is one of the translations that I have found to be a good, essentially literal, word-for-word translation that I think is very, very excellent with regard to its faithfulness. I think there are many others, like the New American Standard. Um, I, I, I like I like many different translations. I like to read different translations to see how the translators have have worked through these texts. But I think one of the most accurate is that I'm using, again, this is not to say that this is, has to be this, the, the, the translation for everyone, but the one that I am using now almost regularly is the English Standard Version. Okay. All right. That's fair enough. And some of us, I mean, I, I, having grown up with the King James... Sure, I did. I'm yeah. comfortable with it, and I'm I am comfortable enough in understanding uh, that version of the English language going back to the 1600s uh, that I don't get tripped up. I know some people do, and therefore maybe uh, not necessarily using the King James, particularly for for new believers or those who don't feel uh, comfortable with the King's English, uh, might be better off. Well, I, I grew up uh, memorizing first out of the King James, and then during my high school and college years, I used the older NIV, the 1984 version, and and it wasn't until recently that I switched over to the ESV. So, you know, everyone has different seasons of life where maybe one translation uh, it better suits them, and depending on their context, their culture, where they're at. But I think there are some translations that are absolutely better than others. There are some translations that I would say maybe have a little bit of a agenda with it, but mm-hmm. in the general sense, I, I think that 
um, the ones that I've first referred to there are pretty healthy. We're going to take a brief time out and come back with some examples as our conversation continues with Dr. Eric Bargerhoff for the book, The Most Misused Verses in the Bible, Surprising Ways God's Word is Misunderstood. We'll come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. And as we do so, you know, the the Bible tells us that, for example, um, it rains on both the just and the unjust. How many of us during circumstances, if we have a friend or a family member who's going through particularly difficult times, whatever that might be, might might give them a word of encouragement. Like from Romans 8.28, very popular scripture. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And so we, we, we will quote that scripture as a means of trying to comfort the person who's going through some difficult times. Don't worry, it's all going to work out. All things will work together for good. Uh, Dr. Marjorie Huff, what's wrong with the application of that under those circumstances? Well, we need to define what it means to say that it's working together for good. Um, because oftentimes... We have inserted our own preconceived idea of what we think good should look like for our own life. And, of course, that involves you know, financial wealth, prosperity, financial health, um, and even physical health as well. And so I think at times we need to understand that that verse it needs to be understood within its very next sentence in the, in the Scripture, verse 29, not just Romans 8.28, but Romans 8.29 which says that for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, which is the greatest good for us, is that we become more like Jesus Christ. So what that means then is that God is using great triumphs and even these tragedies that we go through in this fallen world, and he sovereignly weaves them together in a way whereby he can receive the glory in our life, where we become more like Jesus Christ in our character and in our actions. And that is truly the good that God intends for us. And so it's not a humanistically defined understanding of good. It must be a spiritually rich, robust, theologically sound definition of good that is pleasing and perfect to God in accordance with His will. And there's really two two portions of that scripture, too, aren't there? We, we have the, for those who love God and work together for good. So just to try to toss it out there to suggest that for anybody who's going for difficult times, don't worry, it's all going to work out, which I think we, we typically interpret to mean our way. That's not at all what that passage of scripture is saying nor to whom it's being said no it's it's actually a promise for believers so i want to make sure we understand that for those who who love god those who are the called ones according to his purpose and so that is a very important um factor that we need to understand when we interpret this verse is that this is not just for anybody this is for god's people but it's but it's for god's people who are living life on this earth as aliens and strangers in this world, knowing that the greatest good is yet to come. And that's the plan that God has for us in our eternal future with Him. You know, I was thinking the other day um, just how much we look forward to those new glorified, resurrected bodies that we'll have in the new heavens and the new earth as we all get older. We know that these, these, these things are wearing out. And, um, and it makes you long for what's to come. And so we should understand that 
the greatest good is a future promise, but some of the greatest good that we can experience now is not it to be seen in a materialistic, personal agenda way. It's more of what is going to glorify God, which is going to please Him, and what aligns me with His character so I become more like His Son. Now, that, that fundamental foundation throws a bit of a wrench into the monkey works uh, for John 14, 13, 14, which is so off-sided, particularly by those in the Word of Faith camp, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, ask for anything in my name. I, this I will do if the Father may be glorified in the Son. Uh, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And it almost sends, tends to make God sound like this huge cosmic bellhop, in a sense. Yeah, I kind of call it like a genie in a bottle, yeah. where yeah. where we just kind of uh, have our agenda, have our laundry list, and we endorse it by putting um, praying in God's name at the end of it. Now, I I believe we need to understand what it means to pray in His name. It's a common phrase that He used quite a bit while He was here on Earth, and of course I trace some of that in the book. And but when the heart of it comes out, I think what we're talking about here is doing something and doing that which is in accordance with God's will, ultimately for His glory. So when we pray in His name, our main priority, our main motive must be, what is it that, Lord, that's going to glorify you the most? And and how can my prayer be shaped in such a way that your agenda and your priorities and your purposes far exceed mine? And so that is how we should begin. And in fact, there's a great book called Praying Backwards, written by Brian Chappelle, who says essentially that if we start talking to God with the idea that we're going to pray in His name, and that's how we go into the prayer, it will change the way we pray about the things that we pray about, because mm-hmm. ultimately, we're going to be focused on God and His glory and what's pleasing and perfect to Him. Well, that other passage, you know, um, the the notion that uh, the Lord will give us the desires of our heart, but then God also defines for us where He says our heart needs to be focused. And so it's easy to say, well, I desire, you know, a brand new Cadillac in the driveway and, you know, season tickets to the 49ers, whatever the case might be. But then God talks about blessed is he whose mind is set upon the Lord, whose heart is set upon the Lord. So if God says he's going to give you the desire of your heart and your heart is set on him, now all of a sudden that that just changes the feeling of that scripture altogether now, doesn't it? It does. If you're delighting yourself in God, then guess who it is that is shaping the desires of your heart? Mm -hmm. And, And that's the point, I think, is that our delight, our joy, our sense of being and purpose, our sense of identity is found about who we are in Christ, abiding in Christ, no matter what our circumstances are. And when that's our goal and that's our focus, that's our priority, it changes the way we view our world, we view our life and think about things so that when we do pray, we're praying according to His will, as First John 5 uh, talks about. And then when we ask according to His will and His name, then we'll receive that which we've asked to Him. Why? Because it's according to His perfect plan. Amen. There's one more I want to have you take a quick uh, swipe at, and, and it's one that I have memories of going back into the 1970s, uh, for those of us that are old enough to remember, a dwindling group to be sure, uh, the big Jesus rallies, Jesus 79, Jesus 79, uh, we had these rallies in the, the Candlestick Park in San Francisco, March 
marches on Washington, D.C. And it seems, Eric, no matter where you went, you would hear Second Chronicles 714 cited. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And, and you would get some of these personalities up on stage, quote that, and then talk about the evil people that need to get their act together and you sinners out there and people in Congress and so on and so forth. And I always thought, aren't we directing that particular passage at the wrong people? Instead of pointing out toward others, shouldn't we be pointing toward ourselves? Well, true. Uh, This was a message specifically in the Old Testament for God's people, Israel. So, first of all, it is a message primarily for God's people. But it was also for a particular nation, and that was the nation of Israel during the time of the reign of King Solomon, after he dedicated the temple. Um, There was a promise that God gave to him that if there were times where Israel would wander astray and, and, and go off the path, and, and of course we know the history there, they did many a time, um, judgment would come. God would bring judgment upon them and correct them and train them and punish them and, and try to woo them back to living according to his perfect law. And, and as a result of their disobedience throughout their history, God would sometimes bring judgment. And that judgment would come in the form of even a physical judgment that would fall upon the very land of Israel itself. There was drought, there was pestilence, there was all kinds of locusts that ate their crops, and that was part of God's judgment. So here, God is promising Solomon that upon their repentance, he promised them that he would literally, physically heal that land that was decimated by all those locusts and droughts and famines and things like that. So it's a specific promise to a specific people at a specific time. But what we tend to do is we kind of hijack it out of that context. We generalize it with regard to any idea of healing our land and then apply it as a promise for spiritual revival for any nation where Christians reside. And that's not particularly the right application. Good idea, but wrong verse. We appreciate you spending some time tonight uh, to help uh, put some uh, new perspective or correct perspective, I might better say, uh, on the whole reading and studying and application of God's Word. The book, it's a page-turner, to be sure, an easy one to read, and one that I hope will uh, will get you set in the right direction when it comes to properly studying and applying God's Word. The most misused verses in the Bible, surprising ways God's Word is misunderstood, newly published by Bethany House and available at uh, bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as we're told in 2 Timothy 3 16. All scripture inspired by God, useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what to do, which is right. The key, though, is we have to properly interpret it and apply it. And Eric Barger has helped us do a tremendous job of that tonight. Thanks so much. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.